Hey everyone, this is David with the Tech and Mental Health Podcast. Today, I have Shrenik Jain with us. He's the founder of Sunrise Health. Sunrise is a mobile app for the anonymous text-based group psychotherapy that uses artificial intelligence to scale as an enterprise platform. I also have my co-host here, David Moe. David is a psychiatrist at Massachusetts General Hospital and also the chief medical officer at Valera Health. Valera Health empowers healthcare organizations to scale human-centered care management. How are you guys doing today? Good. Thanks, Renek, for being here. Yeah, excited to get to it. Well, to start things off, Shrenik, uh, can you give us you know, a brief background on you and then, of course, how uh, Sunrise Health came to fruition? Yeah, of course. So like a, a lot of people kind of working in the space, you know, I was affected very personally by um, mental health issues and substance use issues, and then that kind of motivated me uh, along with my team to really work on Sunrise. So my background is as a firefighter and an EMT. And in that line of work, I saw a lot of patients uh, die from overdoses, suicide attempts. But I also saw a lot of responders, some who were very close to me, develop things like PTSD and substance use issues. And one of the most difficult things in sort of watching them deal with those problems is, unlike our patients who were many, many times uninsured or didn't have access to care, we would almost always have some form of free mental health resource as part of our department. But but I never saw a single person use those resources willingly. So that kind of got me keyed onto this idea that maybe it's the existing modalities of treatment, the existing options we give people, maybe they're just not not very palatable, you know, in terms of engagement and retention. And I went to Johns Hopkins to study for my undergrad, where I was studying computer science, public health, and German. And I ran into my co-founder, Ravi, and he had a similar sort of personal story. And he had built essentially a chat app. And the idea was that you could have a group of people who might be part of a group therapy group, say, once a week, but in between the therapy sessions, um, you would be able to connect with your peers in this group setting um, where you can message them back and forth at any time, and you don't know necessarily the identity of the people in this group beyond the fact that your clinician is moderating it and that everybody has a first username. So the idea was to really take that relatability that people find with peers um, and kind of you know, combine that with removing the stigma that you know, talking face-to-face normally has. So what kind of started as that sort of a platform for peer support uh, and or group therapy um, really kind of snowballed into Sunrise Health because what we realized was the reason that no one had taken a platform like this to scale before was that moderating those peer interactions is very challenging. So even though peers are very effective in many contexts at engaging individuals, if you look at you know Reddit, if you look at Seven Cups, if you look at these existing um, peer support platforms, they're really siloed from the clinical infrastructure. And the reason is, you know, on Reddit, when people sometimes post about their depression, um, they have others that are you know literally telling them to go ahead with killing themselves. So we really designed a set of artificial intelligence algorithms that can understand the emotional sentiment. Uh, of each sent message, which really allows you to offer these peer groups as sort of a wraparound service or complement to care without expecting moderators or clinicians to read every single message. And that's kind of the, the core of what we do at Sunrise, offering that kind of scalable peer support in a way that is integrated with the rest of clinical care. 
Gotcha. This is very interesting. And Shrenik, uh, uh, it's really heartening to see that you're, you're using your personal experience as fuel to get you to do something uh, so interesting and so impactful. So uh, we really uh, enjoy having you in this space. Um, Tell us a little bit about this space in general. Uh, what do you see is the market problem uh, that you're solving? Uh, what and you mentioned a couple of others. Uh, if you could talk a little bit more about what they are doing uh, well, potentially, and where maybe elaborate a little bit more on where they are failing and what specific market gap you're fitting into, I think people will be interested in that. Yeah, definitely, David. So. Of course, it's really a, a broad space, so I'll try and focus uh, focus my answer a bit so it's kind of most relevant to you guys. But, you know, one of the spaces that we really focus on, that's kind of our, our initial focus that we're really devoted to is substance use, really, um, not only because it's a, it's a very front-of-mind issue, but also because, you know, when, you, when you're talking about substance use, you're talking about not only a care infrastructure that's kind of siloed from uh, the rest of, of clinical and behavioral health care, but you're also talking about a group that has a a very established tradition of peer support. And in many cases that peer support, you know, AA meetings, 12 step groups, uh, it's not really linked to the rest of, of clinical care. So to give you an example, you know, one of our customers that we sell to right now would be private pay rehabs. And one of the biggest issues that these rehabs have is it's very difficult for them to engage people after they're discharged. Now, the cynical way to say that, to you know, look at it would be to say something like, oh, well, they only get paid for the individuals when they're in their center. So there's no incentive for them to provide aftercare. But I mean, if you look into it a bit more, that's not necessarily true because any organization that can basically provide high quality care and get a reputation for providing high quality care um, will, you know, be more effective at getting interest and getting patients to user facilities than any amount of hiring sales coordinators would be. The issue just is that it's very, very hard to actually reach individuals once they're discharged from the center. What people have really done to date, you know, we have seen a lot of, you know, technology-enabled platforms in this space, um, is they really focus a lot on content delivery. So 90% of what's really being done for, for aftercare in the private pay rehab sense is, is very basic stuff like phone calls, meetups, barbecues. Um, that kind of stuff that's just very low-tech, very ineffective at reaching the majority of people, especially when you consider that people tend to be geographically dispersed when they leave these centers. You know, they might travel to, say, Hazelden up in Minneapolis or go down to Florida, and then they'll be discharged and they'll go all the way back across the country. The second thing that we're really seeing is a lot of companies are doing great work around these content delivery platforms. So platforms that'll push out, for example, you know, a blog post about, you know, be living in recovery, um, they'll create some limited interactivity that way. And it's definitely a step up from what's being done now. But the problem is, it's not truly interactive in the way that a group chat would be, because they can't regulate those actual interactions. So when you're just pushing out that kind of content, it's very effective, definitely at engaging uh, a certain subset of the population, you know, who's, who's receptive to that, but the people who are who are most in need of help, are the ones that are least likely to respond to that kind of engagement. So we basically figured that with our platform, which basically allows you to do these very high touch point, these peer groups, in a way that requires not too much time from the actual aftercare coordinator, it's an opportunity to really support the alumni as they leave. And then also, from a business perspective, it allows the, the center 
to receive referrals at these individuals' jewelry labs. And the benefit there is that not only do those clinicians have a, have a history with that patient, but also from an outcomes perspective, shortening the gaps of time uh, in between an individual's relapse and their return to care is correlated to better outcomes. So in this case, we can provide this kind of very high touch point aftercare service that you know, not only helps the center's bottom line, but also improves the patient experience and translates to better long-term outcomes. So to kind of in short, talk about what other people are doing that we aren't, really the critical thing is if you want to have peer groups that are completely engaging, where people are able to type in their own messages and send them to a group of individuals um, that are also peers, not necessarily clinicians, you need a system to regulate that content. And we've developed the natural language processing, which is kind of that subset of artificial intelligence our technology works in to, to make that possible. Very interesting, very interesting. If I could make a point about that, and more of a question about these, uh, let's say detox centers, these uh, 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 for-profit detox centers. Um, so you're saying that typically the cynical view is that they have no interest in curing people of substance use disorders uh, because that's recurrent revenue for them. And uh, am I hearing you correctly that you're saying that once they take your resources, yes, it may be true that there are fewer relapses or less frequent relapses for their patients, but uh, these patients refer or somehow brandish their reputation uh, in a way so such that uh, their bottom line is still preserved? So yeah, David, I think that that's kind of exactly what we're saying, and it doesn't really hurt their bottom line. So I mean, the first thing is, when you filter out for the people that are obviously running scams, most of these rehab centers, even if they're for profit, they run off a traditional inpatient reimbursement model, they have medical personnel on staff, there are accreditations uh, within the space. The issue is that first thing in literature is that for many individuals with substance use, uh, it's a very chronic condition. You know, there's a sort of a host of, of different results out there in the literature right now, but for most people, multiple stints in rehab are necessary for long-term recovery. So I think even independently of where you go for, you know, your, your inpatient rehab treatment, if that's indicated, for most patients, they need to, to generally go to rehab multiple times. And, you know, a larger issue there is the fact that insurance will only usually pay, most people's private insurance will only pay for a 30-day uh, versus a 90-day stay. So what we're really enabling is just to, for that process to involve more support throughout. Or as the individuals leave the center, they, they still are part of this community. They're part of this alumni network. Because for many people, while the medical and the clinical services they receive are really powerful when they're there, if you talk to a lot of substance use, it's the community and the people they meet when they're in the center that really give them the motivation to stay clean. And they usually do come back and join their local AA group or participate in some sort of peer support center that way. Even in, in Minneapolis, for example, near the Hazelden Center, there are whole places that are just called Hazelden Towns because so many people have found such community there that once they, they leave the center, they end up just settling down. Um, and living with other people from their groups, which I think is a good segue into the other thing you alluded to, which is uh, really the brand of the center. And I think that it really comes down to the fact that these days, um, when someone is going to be committed for uh, inpatient substance use treatment on the private pay side, it's not usually just that individual 
deciding that they want to get better, usually there's a stakeholder, there's their family, there's their spouse, sometimes their employer. And, you know, people aren't stupid in that they know that, you know, it's only 30 days. And I've just seen this person destroy their life over the course of perhaps multiple years through substance use. So they do look at like this, what kind of outcomes are you reporting? What kind of aftercare are you providing to individuals after they leave the center? And that's why for these centers, it's really all about their reputation. Because the other thing is, because of that sort of social uh, framework that's established for even people who are in long-term recovery, they'll continue to sponsor others, they'll be active in their, their local AA or, or NA groups, means that if your center has a reputation for providing quality care, you will attract far more um, you know, inbound interest from people who want to, to go to your center to get clean than you will if you're relying on just traditional sales tactics. And that's something that I think you'll find corroborated by um, the admissions counselors and the CEOs of these centers themselves. Yeah, and I could completely agree with that. I, uh, I had a brief stint at uh, Mass General's uh, addiction clinic, the West End Clinic, and certainly they're uh, among uh, patients who are suffering from uh, substance use disorders. They certainly know which facilities actually care about them getting better versus the ones that, uh, um, as you say, are are more of a sales pitch uh, uh, for-profit uh, uh, turner of patients. And so it's very clear to them. It's very clear to their family. I do agree with that. Um, yeah, I think it's very interesting how you're integrating really these two worlds in a way. So the uh, uh, this whole technology-enabled uh, either group chat or individual chat using the smartphone which is, as you said, classically independent of the healthcare systems um, and then the healthcare systems themselves, which, which is interesting. Um, I'm wondering what metrics, what are the quality metrics that uh, these uh, your clients care about, uh, both in the substance use sphere as well as the mental health sphere? Yeah, of course. So there's, there's definitely a whole host of um, metrics that, that we really track. And it, it really speaks to the fact that what we've built is a, so our model um, kind of more generally is to take a technology platform and then license it to an organization that has any kind of peer supporters, providers, therapists, who then moderate groups on our platform to better reach their existing patient population. So we work with not only substance use treatment facilities, but also case managers is a very common um, type of group that we work with or actual counselors. So in each case, you know, the, the things that matter the most to that client really do vary. Um, a couple things that are common in the substance use space naturally um, at the top is engagement, right? Where you're basically showing that not only are people engaged in the platform, it's not engagement in a trivial sense, they're actually invested. You know, they're, they're responding, they're, you know, that engagement and activation piece is really critical. And then we usually juxtapose that right next to retention in traditional care itself. So, you know, if we're seeing better compliance when it comes to, to outpatient care. And this is really in the context of the case managers. Then, of course, you know, you look at a longer term, longer term, you know, length in recovery, which is something that we have NIH funding now, uh, and we're running some studies around. On the more clinical side, we do integrate diagnostic forms into our platform. So when providers want to, you know, do things like have a PHQ-9 or any other kind of assessment that they're already using, integrated in the platform, we can do that directly. And then right now we actually have some studies running with our clinical partners at Brown and Hopkins to um, look at kind of that more granular outcomes data. 
So right now we really focus a lot on the retention and engagement where gradually moving to be kind of more uh, outcome centric as we get more data from our different pilot sites and early adopters. It's very interesting. Can you tell us a little bit more about the uh, NIH study you were saying? Yeah, so we received some funding from the National Institute on Drug Abuse as part of um, what they basically termed a, a mini SBIR, which is a program they had um, to identify very high potential ideas and even earlier stage than a phase one SBIR. So they gave us some funding to that. <laughs> Thank you. Um, they gave us some funding to that mechanism, the purpose of which was really to uh, design a, both design a proof of concept as well as to teach us as a small business uh, how to apply for federal funding and really run that you know whole gamut of you know ERA commons and done summers and et cetera, et cetera. So we worked basically to we worked in a couple contexts with that funding. What we used that funding to do um, was really set up a pilot within the city of Baltimore where we're rolling out now uh, across eight different sites to look at opioid users. Um, and sort of how very high-risk opioid users and really look at how we can get them engaged with care for a bit longer. And this population is individuals who tend to be very transient. You know, they only really appear um, either in the ER or when something's gone horribly wrong. So we partnered with eight different peer recovery sites throughout the city and we're piloting the app there. We also have a couple other um, studies designed, one looking at opioid users in a more conventional uh, medication-assisted treatment setting. And one of the things that's interesting about that is, you know, as you may know, there's kind of this shift towards um, more outpatient care, right? As people, and more and more people get covered for addictions, or uh, excuse me, I try to avoid using uh, the word addiction. More and more people get covered for substance use type care. There's this movement towards more medication-assisted treatment rather than your traditional inpatient model. So we have a, a trial designed, or not a trial, rather, a feasibility study designed up there with um, Rhode Island Hospital. And then we're also working outside of the substance use space. We have another feasibility study designed working with IHS, um, Indian Health Services, in a suicide prevention context. We're really looking more at suicidal ideation and uh, mood disorders. Well, that's fantastic. I'm glad that you're approaching this in a rigorous way and trying to validate this uh, uh, using uh, using science. So that's uh, that's fantastic. Uh, give us a sense of what the process feels like for a patient uh, who is suffering, let's say, from alcohol uh, use disorder. So let's say they go into the rehab. Uh, they're there. They're doing. Um, their daily groups and their therapy, they're on medications now, and they're getting ready to be discharged. Tell us how uh, Sunrise is integrated within that and maybe paint the picture through the patient's eyes, if you don't mind. Um, so yeah, so basically from the patient perspective, I mean, we'll just take a, you know, say a hypothetical rehab in, in Florida where the weather's warm and a lot of rehabs tend to be. You know, as a patient, there tends to be uh, the first thing, it's, it's really interesting because when you're approaching that discharge moment, there tends to be uh, a lot of apprehension, right? There tends to be, um, you know, you're in this very structured environment. You, you've really overcome a lot, you know, in, in the past month or three months, if you're lucky and you get three months covered by your insurance. You, and suddenly you're wondering, you know, what's next? Because the people that you're closest to are all in the same building as you right now. They're the people in your in your AA group. They pretty much heard you um, bear your soul while you were in rehab this whole time, and they're going to be dispersed all across the country. 
So your alumni coordinator um, would basically sit you down. So right now, even without us, they would do this. And they'd say something like, here's, we're going to call you, you know, a month after you're discharged, a week after you're discharged to see how you're doing. Or here's like a Facebook group you can join. Um, which, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, for someone who's been living in a rehab center, um, that's, you know, kind of a very big shift to go from basically having all these people with you to basically just being part of a Facebook group with every single other alumni from that center ever. So what we do now with Sunrise is these counselor will sit you down and say, hey, you know, I'm your alumni counselor. You've already talked to me a couple of times while you're here. Um, now that you're leaving the center, we're going to, you know, continue to support you. You're going to be part of this recovery center's family by placing you in a small group through the platform here. You can text into this group at any time. All the peers are, all the people in this group are people you've just been in treatment with. And, you know, they'll really stay with you and you, you should support each other and, you know, use this as your community and your space to really keep in touch. And then the group is, of course, moderated by me. And should you feel like, you know, you need any extra help, you know, we're always just a phone call away. And the really interesting thing is that's sort of just the beginning, because when someone is discharged from uh, rehab, for example, there's a very common slang in the substance use world, the pink cloud, um, which basically refers to this false sense of confidence that people who are out of recovery um, or out of rehab, rather, and in recovery have during, say, the first couple months where they get their footing, they kind of find a job, and suddenly they have this, this really to an extent, uh, deceiving sense of confidence where they're like, you know, I've, I've conquered my demons, like, this is great. Um, and it's called a pink cloud. And then it usually ends um, very poorly, right, with a, with a crash to reality, either a craving, a sudden stressor that they weren't prepared for that, that causes a craving, and in many times, a relapse. And the really valuable thing here is that now you have that group that relates to you and people who are going through similar things are people who might have already actually gone through that. So I think I like that example because it's a very concrete example of how it's basically like you see this very consistently. Uh, a lot of people will, will kind of fall off the wagon and relapse right there, you know, less than six months after they're out. And that right there is something that, that we can catch very easily with the platform. And then kind of, you know, as, as people, you know, continue to evolve on their journey to recovery, they'll still have that group. And from the, counselor who's moderating it from their perspective they can they can see that they can they don't have to read every single message but they'll understand from our technology um basically what's the emotional sentiment really looking like in, in the group and how is it trending and how are people doing gotcha very good i mean this is very interesting stuff tell me what are i know this is still early goings and you said that uh, you're only beginning to collect the data and uh, outcomes is really a step two uh, but just looking at the data right now, are there a couple of metrics that you have been able to move the ticker on in terms of, let's say, engagement or prevention from relapse or compliance with, let's say, outpatient follow-up appointments or things along those lines? Yeah, so we have some really promising early data on retention uh, across a couple different populations. For example, in a proof of concept we did with a, um, a college student population, we could almost double retention. Uh, in an in compliance in an outpatient sort of uh, group therapy program from 45% to 90%. So there's some early promising data there. Um, most people on average are texting in twice a day to the group, which is, which is really promising and really exciting. We've kind of identified that our next low-hanging fruit in terms of uh, improvement of the experience is really making the 
the onboarding process really seamless because once people are in the groups, it's actually fairly easy to, to generate engagement. The difficulty we find is really making sure that that onboarding is a, is a frictionless process. Yeah. On the language side, oh, sorry. Talk about that a little bit. Talk about onboarding. Talk about, you know, is this HIPAA compliant? Is this actually, uh, you know, patient protecting information? And how do you make uh, that onboarding process as seamless as possible? So, yeah, so our platform's HIPAA high tech compliant. So the contents of the group messages, they're not necessarily PHI because the group moderator isn't, isn't even necessarily a clinician. However, it's potential PHI. So HIPAA high tech compliant for the platform. And then when you're working with substance use, you know, there's also considerations with 42 CFR part two. On the onboarding side, there's really two ways that we onboard users. The first is in the example I gave you earlier, where, you know, someone is basically onboarded by their counselor face-to-face, they're placed in a relevant group. That's kind of the easiest way to onboard someone. The other way that we do this is we basically go, in the case where we work with a case management organization, we roll out this platform and then, you know, specifically branded for that organization, it's customized to whatever their needs are, and we roll it out to their population. Then users basically sign in, they create a profile, all, all it really takes is an email address and then a password, and they can see a list of groups. Then they apply to join relevant groups, so tapping on a group kind of gives you more information about the group. So it might say something like, you know, this is a group for Latino mothers with depression. And it's going to have a picture of the group's moderator, who could be case manager or social worker or whomever, uh, and a little description or quote they've chosen to put there. And then the individuals basically tap and are placed in a one-on-one conversation with that group's moderator through the text platform. And that's where that group's moderator will basically assess if they're a good fit for, for that group. And if they are, they're admitted into the group and they can text that group at any time. If they're not, then that moderator can refer them to group that's a, a better fit for them. So, you know, it's fairly it's fairly easy for a motivated user. But of course, when it comes to to mental health conditions, you know, you're always trying to remove the friction because sometimes, you know, if you ask really anything um, of individuals when they're using your platform or even just generally when it comes to a mobile app, it's just another another point of friction. So we're experimenting with different ways that the case managers can, you know, pre-populate people in groups. So um, right off the bat, you know, they're in a group of five to 10 people, because the other consideration is it's never fun to be that first person in a group. You know, we really want it so that when someone is accepted into a group and they can see that group chat, um, it's already, you know, full of uh, between five to 10 people they can relate to. And then that group of five to 10 stays the same. And that's another kind of different thing about our platform where we really focus on creating uh, at least semi-permanent communities, because when I looked at sort of what was around already, you know, I saw platforms like Seven Cups, which is, you know, pretty well known, YC backed and all. And the the groups on Seven Cups, one of the biggest issues, I think, is the fact that they're just too open. You know, you have 30 people plus in the chat at one time. Anyone can log in or log out at any time. And it's just impossible to follow a thread or get any kind of individual attention. Gotcha. So a little bit more social engineering and then understanding how big is the group, who should be part of the group, uh, and maybe even pre-designing it early on so that uh, people who can engage with each other are kind of put in the same group. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. 
Uh, broadly speaking, what do you think are the biggest challenges that you faced uh, uh, running uh, Sunrise right now? Um, it could be from the operational end all the way up to fundraising. Uh, what in your mind are the biggest issues? I mean, 100% the biggest issue that's kind of weighing on, on us is the long sales cycle. Uh, when it comes to healthcare systems, um, and I say sales cycle, but I really mean it to towards any decision, right? Like we can make, as a company, we've been lucky enough, fortunate enough to have really great foundation partners, you know, in Baltimore uh, and beyond, you know, places like the Able Foundation, the Strauss Foundation, um, you know, they've underwritten our work with certain underserved populations. There's non-diluted funding, grants really available for what we're doing. Um, but the timeline is just very long on all of these things. You know, I submitted an, a grant in December to the NSF, and I'm not going to hear back about it till April, at least. And that's a that's a very long time in, in you know, startup land. And when we're working with these larger healthcare systems, it's just um, it's just a very big consideration, you know, which space we go into. So that's one of the reasons why we chose to go into substance use, specifically private pay rehabs first, was because these are smaller to mid-sized organizations that um, really can move much more quickly uh, compared yeah. to, to larger healthcare organizations. That makes a lot of sense. And that really is the graveyard of healthcare startups in general, those uh, long sales cycles. Um, even if, uh, as you said, providers or payers or whoever may be, uh, are super interested in what you have to offer, uh, they're, uh, they can say yes, and then their lawyer they give it to their lawyers for nine months, and that could be when your funding dries up. So uh, it's uh, it's a real problem that uh, specifically plagues uh, healthcare startups. Uh, certainly, something that we deal with. Um, have you thought about, uh, or I'm sure you've thought about, uh, have you been able to talk to payers, uh, health insurance companies, and uh, you know, kind of skip that effector uh, uh, arm in the providers and go straight straight to where this, uh, the money is coming from? You know, funnily enough, we've only really just started talking to payers and been having some really interesting conversations. I think part of that was just as a founding team. Um, we really came into this um, with kind of your typical uh, patient and provider-centric mentality where, you know, we understood like that for a lot of patients, like these were the problems they were facing. But we could, by extension, very logically think about, okay, this is how the app would need to work for it to make sense for a provider. And, you know, in particular, like kind of the core of what we're doing, which is which is leveraging peer support and then building that that AI engine on top of it with the goal of really understanding how people in different groups talk amongst each other and, and personalizing care itself, it just, from a thought perspective, didn't lead to us thinking that much uh, as to going for, for payers immediately. I mean, we were obviously aware of their role in the space, but we had initially had the assumption that, you know, we would gather data on our own and then kind of uh, make a case to them. However, you know, working with groups at Mass Challenge, we're part of the Texas Medical Center's Accelerator now. Uh, we also have some mentors out of Johns Hopkins. Um, you know, we really realized that that was a bit of a misconception. So now we're talking to um, a few payers and smaller kind of smaller payers, um, but also generally, you know, larger wraparound service providers. And we're having some just really interesting conversations there. And I'm sure, you know, your experience with Valera has, has sort of keyed you into the, the payer world as well. 
Certainly. And it's particularly interesting, I think, for for substance abuse, um, as you know, just uh, so that our listeners are aware as well. Um, so many, many large insurance companies and some uh, some smaller ones as well, uh, they carve out behavioral health and substance use and uh, they pay a third party to manage uh, those specific services. And so I'm, I'm curious as to uh, when you talk to payers, are these the ones that carve out the services? Are these the one that integrate the services? Is that some combination thereof? You know, how how do you, how are they thinking about it, and how are you thinking about this? Yeah, so I mean, we're really thinking about it where it's like the real the real fundamental thing about what we do is we try to really provide the platform so that existing providers who are specialized to whatever population they're working with can can really scale up. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, you see a lot of startups that are, you know, for example, starting in this value-based healthcare space and they end up selling more towards employers. Um, And for us, that's like not really a shift. That's that's something we can turn on a dime because we are just a technology platform in terms of how we actually render services. So we really have been working with most of the behavioral health carve-outs. And the reason for that is just, you know, they're the ones who are assuming risk for this population and they very concretely kind of understand this, this concept that if you can save my case managers, you know, 15 hours a week, um, that, that's a very you know, tangible ROI for them. We have been talking to kind of your more general uh, health insurers. And the interesting thing is they tend to see this less as an opportunity um, for substance use as they see it for a way to address comorbidities in their diabetic population. You know, in, in more general, like, can we put patients in these affinity groups, which your technology can regulate and use to generate engagement kind of um, very cheaply? So the way we look at it really is our core, our core kind of focus right now is the, these kind of behavioral health um, carve out type payers, really, because that's where we can validate what we're doing, you know, down, down to the nitty gritty and really show outcomes and, and show how we're making a difference for patients. But in the, in the long run, there's a lot of different applicability. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think once you are able to show the data, I think even if their infrastructure is carve out, carbon, whatever it may be, they'll they'll make it work for you uh, to integrate your service uh, into theirs. Um, from the clinical side, I just had a, a interesting, uh, you know, read this interesting book recently where they talked about how uh, um, the heroin epidemic uh, is fueled at least in a large part by the way heroin is sold. And one thing they do uh, is actually they target rehab centers. So mm-hmm. the dealers would be around the rehab centers waiting for these people to come out in order to give them a free sample, give them a number, give them something. Um, and and just the top line thought hearing about this, what you're doing, it's very interesting because you remove that influence, right? Because these drug dealers are not able to join these groups. They have to be former patients of uh, these facilities, right? So um, I'm wondering, uh, though, on the on the other side, uh, heroin uh, uh, use disorders is very different than alcohol use disorder, is very different than, you know, other things. You could very quickly imagine that someone who relapsed on heroin might say, you know, I just scored something from my dealer at this place, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And that could be a negative influence in a way that I think alcohol uh, uh, alcohol use disorder does not spread. So I was just wondering how you thought about the different types of addiction and uh, how, uh, if 
at all right now are the programs tailored potentially or maybe this is something in the uh in the plans for the future yeah yeah definitely so i mean of course the example you give makes me think to those terrible news headlines about you know the relapse centers that will pay literally pay the patients to relapse to come back in or i was actually just talking to a, a psychiatrist at brigham the other day and he was mentioning that he couldn't even send patients to na meetings anymore because they had been infiltrated by by drug dealers and i think that that briefly i wanted to speak to that just because peer support is something that's really powerful but peer support is also something right now that has very very minimal oversight and that's kind of scary when you think about basically how on one end you know samsha has has really disseminated a lot of this like these peer support communities have formed um, but in many cases, there's not really much oversight into what's actually being said. And, and, you know, you have, you know, the whole anti-psychiatry movement that's really taken root in some places. You have groups where, you know, people will say they get X prescription from their doctor. And the first feedback they're going to get is like, oh, that, that made me nauseous. Like, don't take that. Or, you know, don't take that. It's like, you know, a vestige of imperialism trying to control your brain. Like, if people actually say things like this, and it has really, really important impacts, I think, on, on how a lot of patients actually end up outcome-wise because people listen to their peers. So one one really important thing I think that we're doing is is really adding oversight to that kind of peer element and more importantly, looking at how different populations uh, respond to different types of support because there really hasn't been very dedicated study um, of the natural language that, that different groups use. I mean, now you're seeing some early stuff with social media you know, looking at, you know, how do veterans really differ from college students um, when it comes to talking about suicidality and substance use and things like that. And the problem is social media itself is still a very, it's a very noisy data set to work with. So our hope is really that we can personalize um, a lot of care itself by just going on this with this B2B model, going on a site-by-site -site basis uh, and really learning that way. And, and to that end, we've designed the algorithms to be kind of robust. So we have started adapting, for example, to certain elements of Spanglish um, that's spoken in, in high Hispanic population. And that, I think, is a good segue uh, into your next, your next question, which is really, how do we treat the differences um, between different conditions? And that's a really interesting technical problem. The way we looked at it was really on two levels. Um, the first level is there are certain things um, that are manifestations of a host of conditions that would either way require the immediate attention of a moderator. So those are things like maliciousness, suicidality, um, someone disclosing personal information, you know, saying something like, my name is really, you know, Shrine Jane, I live at this address. But those types of things uh, we can really catch with a generalized kind of model. Then there are more condition-specific things. And, you know, we really then have sort of models that we layer for different conditions and populations um, on top of what our general like intervention uh, core model looks for to basically become more specific as time goes on. So this naturally is kind of very closely related to how much data we have from different populations. So we built this core model that can catch the imminent things that pose a risk to the group's safety. And that, that works really well. That, that's something we've deployed in practice, and it's what allows us to offer the service we do. Right now, we're in the uh, early stages of actually making this very specific to substance use, so catching um, unique terms for relapse. There's a lot of slang uh, as to how people will refer to even heroin overdoses, you know, golden shot or, um, you know, other 
types of slang like that that we've kind of gotten better at catching. And to the short answer to your question is re- really these kinds of things are are more apparent when you get data from these different populations. And it's just important that as a company and as the, we organize this as scientists, that we're just very rigorous in uh, you know labeling what comes from where and correlating that to actual outcomes and validated diagnostic instruments, which is why we've integrated those things uh, with our platform right now. And to that end, we work very closely with Dr. Jariam, who is our chief medical officer. She's a professor of psychiatry at Johns Hopkins, who really helps us tailor things that way. This is fantastic. I, you know, I really do appreciate uh, the rigor by which you're doing this because I agree with you. I think social media, uh, these, uh, the rise of the seven cups and, uh, the talk spaces, these are just, they magnify whatever social contagion there is, whether it's good or bad, it just makes it that many times greater, uh, the force. So, um, a lot of that is going unchecked. Um, and I'm glad that, uh, uh, you have uh, experts who are helping you guide uh, how to manage and study uh, these behaviors so you can better predict what um, an optimal treatment would look like. Um, I'm uh, thinking about uh, uh, last question for me before I hand it over uh, to David. Um, how do you think about the market going forward? So right now you're talking to uh, uh, substance abuse clinics. Uh, uh, you're talking to some payers. Uh, some uh, carve out uh, behavioral health uh, companies. Uh, what's the holy grail here? Let's say in the next year to two, uh, where where do you hope that uh, your uh, what would a home run look like uh, a year from now? I mean, for us, it's definitely getting getting more on the payer side. I mean, tactically speaking, we're really focused on, on substance use right now, um, moving both in inpatient as well as into into outpatient care because it is a kind of faster growing space. But I think. I think the thing about mental health really at its core, when you look at the economics, is overwhelmingly the incentives uh, fall on, on the payer side. So for us, it's really validating what we do to the point that we can scale this with um, with a payer's network. Great. I completely agree with that. Um, uh, David, uh, any other questions? Yes, yes. So... Um one question I do have for you is, so when it comes to developing the product, um, what has been your guys' process? Sure, I understand you have experience in the past within this industry, but are you embedded in your clients right now? How are you listening to feedback, prioritizing features? What does that exactly look like? Yeah, I mean, um, the, the honest answer is that it's been a lot of just talking to, to our early adopters in a, in a very unglamorous way. I mean, there are certain things that, with, especially with regards to onboarding and conversion, that um, SaaS products generally automate, and we will have to automate as time goes on. But for the near future, what Ravi, my co-founder, and I have really been doing is that every time we have a site, we've actually been going there ourselves, you know, and training the moderators. You know, whether it's through video call or we go physically and talk to them, um, we watch them use the platform, we kind of see where they get hung up that way. Because it's not that hard to build an app that the users will use. That's, I think, relatively easy because the core functionality for them is a group chat, which is something people are very familiar with. But on the moderator side, that's really where we're the most concerned about um, making things easy to use and, and keeping people from getting frustrated. So it's been a lot of that. Um, it's been a little bit of you know, really considering um, which features are essential 
to, to prove out the core value of what we're offering. So for example, we have um, one of the early mistakes we did, we did actually early on was we spent some time, uh, quite a bit of time building uh, HIPAA compliant VoIP, VoIP calling into the platform because we had assumed that you know, people would want to complement these text-based groups with uh, voice calls. What we found in practice was that almost everybody preferred text. It really wasn't um, something that, that people were super hung up on, the ability to do calls, because for most people, the ability to, to sit back and, and message in the comfort of wherever was far more valuable. So ever since that lesson, which is pretty early on, it's been a lot of just listening to the individual people we, we work with. And then the other final consideration is, um, and this is a bias that I've noticed that a lot of uh, digital health startups tend to fall into, is um, building, it's easy to build something for providers and, and patients, but then building something from the payer side uh, tends to be a bit more challenging. So to that end, we've um, engaged some, some of our advisors, but also some of our, our early customers. We've really had asked them, you know, if, you were gonna, if we were going to bill for this, like what kind of report would need to be generated here? You know, like what kind of documentation do you need to see um, with X code or Y code and just really getting into the nitty gritty by talking to people. And what about pricing? I understand, I mean, the tool creates a tremendous amount of value as a, uh, a value add for these substance abuse centers, you know, when people do get discharged. Um, in addition to that, saving care managers time. How have you guys um, evolved a pricing model to make it work? Yeah, so we, we have two main types of pricing models. The first is the lump sum that we just do for a paid pilot for, you know, $25,000, $30,000, for just a paid pilot where we set certain engage, engagement metrics that, you know, convert uh, at the end of the pilot period, which is between three to six months. The more generalizable pricing model we have is a fairly uh, regular PMPM between 3 to $5 per patient per month. And... That really is a reflection, this is mainly for use in the private pay rehab space, and that's really a reflection of, of the business we drive to them. So we take about, you know, we generate for, let's say, a 40-bed mid-size rehab, um, we would generate about an additional $800,000 in revenue for them every year, about 70000 of 75000 of which is profit, and then, you know, we would look at an ACV of about a third of that, just about $25,000. So that's kind of the general model, and we figured that made the most sense, um, just because for an early stage company, um, there's a lot of consistency there. You know, and just having a standard um, licensing type model where we charge based off the potential users in the population um, just makes it the easiest. It doesn't disincentivize usage, and um, at this stage, setting up a risk share, which is something we've talked about, um, can be a bit challenging because in a lot of cases. Um, it's not necessarily clear what we would share risk on. So this way, we, we give them the flexibility to, to use the, the platform in whichever way they see fit, whether it's with their case managers, whether it's as a step-down care tool, and we just do that, that flat kind of pricing model that way. Because the other thing is, there are codes we can actually bill for the service that we're rendering, and that's kind of just a process that we want um, to be entirely on the provider side. So it's just easier for us to to do that kind of a lump sum licensing model. That makes a lot of sense. I think that's definitely the way to go. First, get data, 
don't share risk because you could get very messed up in that. Uh, you know, let, let's say there's an epidemic that's completely outside of your control and uh, you might not get paid by the end of the year because of something that's completely not your fault. Uh, on the other hand, you might be doing something really great, uh, but then show it, demonstrate it within a few months. And then you can say, we've been able to do this for the upcoming year. You should expand our pilot, number one. And number two, uh, let's agree on this uh, uh, risk sharing uh, uh, model. So. Um, I think that's a good blueprint in general for any behavioral health uh, startup uh, today. Now, also, one, one last question here when it comes to more of the sales process. Outside of, let's say, the long sales cycle, when you do get down the line and you're finally there um, selling, what what are some of the, the pushback that you do receive? Is it, is it revolve around pricing? Is it just behavioral change for them to use a new technology? What do you normally run into? I think the biggest consideration for us was that um, on, we're not an end-to-end -end service, right? We provide a platform that requires some uh, adoption or some adjustment to how things are, are being currently done. And, and of course, you know, we back that up by saying, you know, make this small change and you'll save this much money and your patients will be this much happier. But I think when you have a model like that, um, there are times when you, you just have to be, A, you have to be very targeted about who your actual customers are. So for example, we went to case managers and we went to alumni coordinators, substance use treatment facilities, because they were people who were already tasked with just engaging these patients. And in many cases, were already comfortable using a text modality. Um, we actually, you know, within the case management space, found many case managers who would text their, text their clients. Um, which is, of course, you know, a questionable thing to do, but I think it just speaks to the fact that the, the modality came very naturally to them. There are definitely times when, for example, we, we get, an, for example, an inbound interest for someone to see what we're doing. They think it's interesting and they want to adopt it. And we just realize that it, it's maybe not necessarily the best fit for what they're doing if it's, say, a private therapy practice. So in the beginning, it was a lot of trial and error, but it really comes down to, for us, just really refining who we're specifically targeting, especially at this early stage where, you know, your early customers really do determine the product roadmap. Oh, I think this is just fantastic. I think uh, if I were to zoom back a little bit and think about what uh, startups uh, that are successful early uh, and uh, in the behavioral health space are doing and what the common denominator seems to be is one, two, and three on the list is patient engagement. So whatever you have to do, if you can engage the patient, whether it's in substance abuse or a depression or psychosis, uh, that is the holy grail and uh, providers and payers will, will pay attention. So uh, I'm, I'm glad that you guys are able to do that. And I think uh, this, this has a lot of promise. Shrenik, to close things out here, what, how can our listeners help you? So I'm glad you asked that because we actually just opened our first fundraise, a half a million dollar pre-seed round on a convertible note. We're using the money to really scale up what we're doing on the product side, convert our first batch of pilot customers into recurring revenue, and put out some of the papers from the existing kind of deployments that I mentioned earlier. So we already have commitments from some of the foundations we've worked with and some of the angels that have worked previously in the space that are in our network. and. You know, if you're either an institutional investor in the form of a micro VC or a VC that invests at the early stage or just a mission driven individual, you know, we'd love to have a conversation and see if there's an opportunity for us to work together. 
You can reach out to me at shrenik at sunrisehealth.co. So my first name, S-H-R-E-N-I-K at sunrisehealth.co. Thanks for having me on the show, guys. That was the podcast. To get a hold of Sunrise Health, you can reach them at sunrisehealth.co. And to get a hold of Shrenik, you can reach him at Shrenik, S-H-R-E-N-I-K, at sunrisehealth.co. Thanks for listening.